Murder on the Music Scene has rebranded. We are now going by the name Mysterious-ish. Join us for Season 2 of Mysterious-ish, where we will be discussing conspiracy theories such as time travel and aliens. Season 2 premieres March 22nd with two new episodes. Murder on the Music Scene contains graphic and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Murder on the Music Scene, the podcast where a music educator, but not really, and a music enthusiast discuss the deaths of musicians and the mysteries surrounding them. I'm Caitlin. I'm Erica. And I'm not a teacher anymore, but that's okay. (laughs) So today we're going to be talking about Marilyn Monroe. Beautiful. And this is going to be our first two-pod Two parts. We got two parts for you today because good fucking lord does she have a ton of conspiracies. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do two parts and this time Kaylin's going to get to discuss some conspiracies that Erica researched because Kaylin had to research biography and Jesus Christ she has so much. So we're not going to banter because I have seven pages of biography. Can't wait. Here we go. Um, I was going to say something else. Two parts, Marilyn Monroe. Oh, she's not really a musician, but she acted in musical musicals and she sang happy birthday to the president. Sure did. So we're going to count it. Yep. It's a stretch. It's a stretch. Here we go. Episode 20. Norma Jean Mortensen was born (laughs) at the Los Angeles County Hospital on June 1st, 1926. Her mother was Gladys Pearl Baker, but her father's identity is unknown. Uh, She also used the last name Baker um, because that was her mother's last name. Uh, For right now, I'm going to call her Norma, and I will switch to Marilyn later when she switches her name. So Norma's mother, Gladys, had a troubled past. Uh, Gladys was born into a poor Midwestern family who eventually moved out to California. Um, When she was 15 years old, Gladys married 24-year-old John Newton Baker, and they had two children, Robert and Bernice. Um, But John was abusive. So Gladys filed for divorce Hmm. and sole custody of the children in 1923. She was uh, granted the divorce because, you know, that's how it worked at the time in 1923, 1920, whatever. 1920, whatever. Because women had to prove that husband was not fit husband in order to be granted the divorce. You couldn't just be like, hey, we're getting divorced. You had whatever. It's stupid. Anyways, we're past that. So she was granted the divorce and uh, in custody of her two children. However, John, Johnny boy, this fuck, he uh, kidnapped the two children and took them to Kentucky with him. What? (laughs) Yeah. So whatever. I don't really. That's all I could find like about those two. That's it. They got kidnapped and taken to Kentucky. So after... (laughs) After her divorce from John, Gladys worked as a film negative cutter for Consolidated Film Industries 
1924, she married Edward Martin Morton. <laughs> Whoa. Wait, stop. I know I messed that up. Stop. His name was Martin Edward Mortensen, and my brain flipped the two names. Martin Edward Mortensen. Beautiful. But after a few minute minutes... I hate it here. <laughs> Listen, I told you it was going to be interesting trying to record today. My brain... Oh, what is going on? Cable what is on. happening? Uh, Malfunction. Everyone stand back. Oh my god. <laughs> We're back from the technical difficulties. So sorry. This is going to be a long-ass episode. <laughs> we have wine, because we're recording both parts tonight. Yes. So here we go. Uh, Martin Edward Morrison. Um, but after a few months, not minutes, they separated and divorced in 1928. Uh, two years after the birth, birth of Norma. The birth <laughs> of Norma Jane. Erica, listen. What? I fucking hate it here. <laughs> so this Martin Mortensen is a contender to be Norma's father, Norma Jean. But Norma Jean's last name is spelled Mortensen with an O-N on the end. And Martin's is spelled E-N at the end. So who the fuck knows? Anyways, Gladys, I don't know if it was just like misspelled. I don't fucking know. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Mm-hmm. So Gladys was never really mentally or financially prepared to have a child. So she ended up placing Norma with a fuck ton of foster parents. Um, one set being named um, Albert and Ida Bolander. Boleander. Bolander? I don't know. I like Boleander. I do too, but I heard it a couple different ways. Huh. Um, but they lived outside, or they lived in Hawthorne, which was outside of L.A. Um, so Gladys actually stayed with Norma at the Bolianders, what I'm going to call them, because this is the only time I mention them. Um, she stayed with them and Norma for about six months, but eventually had to move back to the city in order to work. She would come and visit Norma on the weekends. Um, and when Norma was seven, Gladys bought a small house in Hollywood using a loan she got from the brand spank new Homeowners Loan Corporation. This was a government-sponsored corporation whose purpose was to refinance home mortgages and buy them from lenders so the U.S. citizens could buy the houses for a lower interest rate and have a longer time frame to pay them off the loan. I thought I was watching an ad there for a second. (laughs) Maybe I should do voice acting <laughs> instead of not voice acting. You know what I mean. You guys are just like, whatever. I'm going to shut up. Okay. Goodbye. <laughs> I barely understood anything of what I just said, but it's totally fine. It's Maybe all right. Not. So Gladys and Norma Jean lived in this house along with actors George and Maud Atkinson. M-A-U-D-E. Maud. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their daughter, Nellie. I just love old time names I so know. much. They're Gladys, awesome. Nellie, Norma Jean. Listen, I used to hate the name Norma. I mean, like, not hate it, but, like, I kind of was like, like, ugh, like, why Norma? But, like, Norma Jean is cute. cute. I would cute. just call her Norma Jean. I would, Ain't too. No Norma. Norma Jean. Exactly, exactly. Um, I don't know what I was. Oh, in 1934, Gladys had a mental breakdown and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. 
Uh, she stayed at home for a while, but was eventually committed to the Metropolitan State Hospital, where she would spend the rest of her life in and out of hospitals and therefore barely had any contact with Norma Jean. So now Norma Jean is a ward of the state. But Grace's Grace's bleh, but Gladys's friend Grace Goddard took responsibility for Norma as well as Gladys's affairs. Uh, so Norma Jean continued, however, to live with the Atkinsons for the first year and some months. Um, it is thought that she was sexually abused while living with the Atkinsons. Um, she had always been shy, but had now developed a stutter and was very withdrawn. In the summer of 1935, Norma Jean stayed with Grace Goddard and her husband, Doc. She also stayed with two other families during this time. So she's just like bouncing around all over the place. Um, in September of that year, Grace Goddard put Norma Jean in the Los Angeles Orphans Home. This was supposed to be a, quote, model institution, but for Norma, or but Norma Jean, for obvious reasons, felt abandoned. Uh, in 1936, Grace Goddard became Norma Jean's legal guardian, but she did not remove Norma from the orphanage until mid-1937. But living with her, with Grace and her husband, Doc, did not last long, nor was it a better experience than the orphanage because um, Doc was a literal piece of garbage and he decided that he was going to molest Norma Jean. So she left and moved around a lot, again, staying with relatives and friends around L.A. and even in Compton. Compton. Sorry, I'm done. Uh, in 1938, we're just going to keep going because I have a lot of shit to get through. So sorry. In 1938, Norma Jean finally found a more permanent home with Grace's aunt, Anna Lower, or maybe Anna Lauer, or maybe Anna Lauer. I don't know. It's spelled A-N-A Lower. Lauer. I'm gonna call her Lauer because all right. maybe it's lower. I don't fucking know. I'm sorry. All right. So anyways, here she was enrolled in Emerson Junior High School and attended Christian Science Services weekly with uh, Mrs. Lauer. Uh, Norma wasn't the best student except when it came to writing. She often contributed to the school newspaper. Uh, once again, this moment of levity was brief Uh, Norma was sent back to live with the Goddards due to Anna's decreasing health. So she began attending Van Noyce. 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 N-U-Y-S. Whatever. High school in Van Noyce, California. Cool. But. (laughs) Van Noyce. I don't fucking know how to say it. I'm not sorry. Okay. In 1942, Doc's company relocated him to West Virginia, and California's child protection laws would not let the Goddards take Norma Jean out of California, Um, so she would have to return to the orphanage. So instead of doing that, she married the Goddards' 21-year-old neighbor, James Doherty. Uh, Norma Jean was barely 16 when they married on June 19th, 1942. She, like, was 18 days past 16. And she got married because then she was legally emancipated in the eyes of the law. Mm-mm. So now Norma Jean dropped out of school to become a housewife. And in 1943, James enlisted in the Marines and he was stationed on Santa Catalina Island where Norma Jean lived with him. The fucking Catalina wine mixer. Yes. So she later said that she and James. <laughs> Listen. I thought I was picking a sweet wine for Erica and I today. 
But it turns out that it's a little drier than I expected. It's more of a semi-sweet than a sweet. And um, Erica's not a fan. So it's fine. It's all good. She, every, time, every time she takes a sip, she makes face. It's okay. I sent my husband to the liquor store to get us like a sweet, a bottle of sweet wine because apparently I don't have any. It's, I'm so sorry. It's fine. I'm going to drink it because I paid money for it and it's a Tennessee wine. So it's valuable and I paid money for it. So I'm going to fucking drink it. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to make Erica suffer through it. <laughs> So, um, Norma Jean later said that she and James were not the best match for each other and that she was, quote, dying of boredom during her marriage to him. That's never a good sign in a marriage. So, in 1944, James was, quote, shipped out to the Pacific. I do not know what that means. I don't know. But he was there for two years. So Norma Jean moved in with her in-laws and started working at the radio plane company, which made military weapons and equipment. Later that year, she met a photographer who was sent to the factory to take morale-boosting pictures of female workers because it was the 40s and women did not work. So this photographer's name was David Conover. Conover? I don't know. Conover. 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 I like Conover. Conover. Conover? I don't want to call him Conover. This is, again, irrelevant. So Norma Jean quit the factory and began modeling for David. Um, She signed a contract with Blue Book Model Agency in August of 1945. Blue Book decided that Norma's figure was, quote, more suitable for pinup than high fashion modeling. Probably because she didn't disappear behind a damn toothpick. God forbid she have some curves. Anyway, she also strained and bleached her beautiful curly brown hair to become what we know her as today she had brown hair it was gorgeous there will be photos on the the blog look but because she had absolutely stunning curly brown hair mm-hmm. and she just like bleached it i would have never guessed never knew that yep so apparently dying and uh, straightening her hair worked, though, because by early 1946, Norma Jean Mortensen had... What? Are you good? You're, like, apparently dying. Oh. And then you paused for a little bit. Oh, because I, I like, couldn't... Because I couldn't form I words. I forgot that you were talking about dying hair. I was <laughs> like, oh, whoa. Where are we going with this? Oh, no. Apparently I'm bleaching and straightening her hair. The wine is hitting here. see i i am the one that partakes in the wine erica partakes in other activities (laughs) i could get through two bottles of wine and be perfectly fine except i haven't had food so that's oh same i haven't either i haven't really ate today it's okay we're just gonna make dylan drive us it's fine and it'll be great here we go what were we talking about oh yeah she wasn't a toothpick. She straightened and dyed her curly hair. Okay. Uh, so by early 1946, Norma Jean Mortensen had appeared on 33 magazine covers. Um, she would occasionally use the pseudonym Jean Norman. <laughs> Jean Norman. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so through the owner of Blue Book, uh, her name was Emmeline Snively, which I fucking love the name Emmeline. 
It's so pretty. So Norma Jean signed a contract with an acting agency and was given a screen test by the one 20th Century Fox. Um, the head executive, his name was Daryl Zanuck. Zanuck. I don't know. Sorry. He was less than enthusiastic about hiring her, but he gave her a six-month contract anyways in order to prevent her from being signed by his rival, RKO Pictures. So her contract began in August of 1946, which is when she began using the name Marilyn Monroe, which was chosen by another 20th Century Fox executive. So now I will be calling her Marilyn. The next month, she divorced James Doherty and uh, because he opposed her career. So Marilyn spent her contracted time at 20th Century Fox learning how to act, sing, and dance. They renewed her contract in February of 1947 and gave her two small roles in, or gave her small roles in two movies. They also sent her to the Actors Laboratory Theater, which taught techniques of the, quote, group theater. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. So, though she was very enthusiastic about acting, her teachers thought that she was too shy and insecure to have a future in acting. Boy, did she show them. Sure did. Mm. So, Fox did not renew her contract again in August of 1947, so she started modeling again, and um, while also doing odd jobs at film studios. Um, She kept studying at the Actors Laboratory and did a small role in a play, but that ended after a few performances. So after some schmoozing, I'm skipping a lot here, I'm sorry. After some schmoozing, she was signed with Columbia Pictures in March of 1948. Here, she was modeled after Rita Hayworth and her hair was bleached platinum blonde. Um, She worked with a drama coach named Natasha Lytus, who would be her mentor until 1955. The only film she played in here... At Columbia Studios was a low-budget musical called Ladies of the Chorus, which was not very successful, and Columbia did not renew her contract. So Marilyn went back once again to modeling, and she posed in artistic nudes for John Bumgarth calendars. Up until this point, she had posed topless or in a bikini for other artists, but was uncomfortable with full nudity. So after meeting Johnny Hyde, who was vice president of the William Morris Agency... My dog is, my dog is wrapping her, (laughs) my dog just tried to commit suicide. Can you not, I love you like a lot and I would really appreciate you not dying, thanks. Jesus, what was I even talking about? Uh, Uncomfortable with full nudity, right. So, uh, same. So, after meeting Johnny Hyde, who was vice president of the William Morris Agency, she was given several small roles in films. She was mentioned in Photoplay Magazine for her role in The Asphalt Jungle, which moved her, quote, from movie model to serious actress. In December of 1950, Johnny Hyde negotiated a seven-year contract with 20th Century Fox, but Fox could suddenly decide not to renew the contract after each year. So it was a seven-year contract, but not fucking really. And she was locked into the rate that they had agreed to pay her as, like, a starting actress. Hyde died of a heart attack a couple days later. Marilyn was mm, not great. She was mad and upset. And I can't think of the word. D. She was not depressed. Devastated. Jesus Christ. 
It's okay. I couldn't figure it out either. I'm like, oh. She was devastated that he died. Good God. <laughs> Um, and in 1951, Marilyn had supporting roles in three comedies, which were As Young As You Feel, Love Nest, and Let's Make It Legal. All three featured her, quote, essentially as a sexy ornament. But critics loved her anyways. Her popularity was increasing. She would, she would receive a couple thousand fan letters every week. Literally a ton. Because a couple? You know, like 2000? Sorry, I'm done. That was really stupid. Anyways. Mm. In 1952, she began dating New York Yankees player Joe DiMaggio. In March of that same year, she revealed that she had posed for a nude calendar in a uh, nude calendar a few years prior. Marilyn and the studio decided, 20th Century Fox, decided to just come clean and stress that Marilyn had been broke when she had posed for the photos which this earned her public sympathy, which is something I don't think would happen nowadays. I don't think people would be like, oh, yeah, that's great. Sorry you were poor. They'd be like, mm, and slut shame the fuck out of her. So she was already being looked at as a sex icon, but she wanted to establish herself as an actress. She took acting classes and practiced method acting for some of her roles, going as far as to spend time in a fish cannery in order to prepare for a role where she worked in a fish cannery. Hmm. I couldn't do it because the smell of fish makes me want to kill myself. This role she received positive reviews for, but that was not the case for the thriller in which she portrayed a mentally disturbed babysitter. This mentally disturbed babysitter movie received mixed reviews, one deeming her too too inexperienced for the role and another blaming the script. So one was like, meh, she sucked. And the other was like, no, the script sucked. Marilyn was amazing. I agree with the second. Three other movies in 1952 featured Marilyn being typecast in comedic roles, which, no surprise, highlighted her sex appeal. Mm. One role as a beauty pageant contestant was created for the sole purpose of being able to have Marilyn appear in two bathing suits. Another movie, she secret she <laughs> wiki wiki what I hate it here. Remix. Listeners, are you there? Hello. <laughs> Another movie, she played a secretary who is a quote dumb childish blonde, innocently unaware of the havoc her sexiness causes around her. I'm gonna scream. I fucking hate it here. To be a man. What a fucking concept. Everyone, including Marilyn, sort of had a hand in turning her into and keeping her a sex symbol. She stayed on brand when she wore a revealing dress to the Miss America pageant parade where she was acting as the Grand Marshal. I don't know what that means. She also told a gossip columnist that she didn't typically wear underwear. Oh, Along with her reputation as a sex symbol, she had also earned a reputation for being hard to work with. She would often be late, sometimes just never showing up at all. She forgot lines and would demand additional takes of scenes until she was satisfied with her own performance. Apparently, she also had a dependency on her acting coaches, which annoyed directors. Um, She did say that she didn't like the lack of control that she had on film sets and that she preferred photo shoots where she had more control and was able to act spontaneously as opposed to following a script. 
So Marilyn suffered from anxiety and insomnia. Same girl, same. But she did do the one thing that I would not do to alleviate my anxiety. She started taking a uh, lovely cocktail of barbiturates, amphetamines, and alcohol. Barbiturates are depressants, so downers, and amphetamines are stimulants or uppers. So uh, <laughs> I would uh, imagine that her body was in some state of turmoil, like, what the fuck do you want from me? You know? Yeah. But it's like fine. a roller coaster. Yeah, her body was probably like, mm, bitch, make well, up your mind. How should I feel? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So despite her being difficult to work with, her career was still thriving at this point. She worked on numerous movies, all within her sex symbol brand. She continued wearing revealing and scandalous outfits to various events. She also received critical reviews from women all over, including Joan Crawford, who said that Marilyn's behavior was, quote, unbecoming of an actress and a lady. Wah, let her be. Leave her alone. Let her do her. Don't slut shame. Mm-hmm. And so her on-screen persona as a dumb blonde and her sex symbol brand as the blonde bombshell stood. She literally starred in a comedic musical titled Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. As a blonde, I can attest that that is incorrect. Thanks. Thanks. So this gentleman prefer blondes was unsurprisingly a huge hit at the box office. And then her position as the United States leading sex symbol was cemented when in December of 1953, Hugh Hefner featured her on the cover and in a centerfold of the first issue of Playboy magazine. But here's the thing. Marilyn Monroe did not consent to this publication. Oh. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much um water that holds because I'm pretty sure she would be royally pissed and like, sue, and I didn't see anything about that, but whatever. So she was also being treated horribly by 20th Century Fox and their executives as well as directors for movies. She was severely underpaid given her success. Um, she was also not allowed to choose what movies or projects she participated in. They would not let her star in serious roles or roles that went against the brand that they so lovingly tacked to her. Um, they did not think that she would make them enough money if she did other types of roles besides sex symbol, blonde bombshell, dumb blonde, whatever. Mm-hmm. So in 1950, er, sorry, in January of 1954, Marilyn was suspended from Fox because she refused to play the same role in yet another musical comedy. She was like, no, fuck this. Give me a serious role. I can act. So she married Joe DiMaggio on January 14th, 1954, and then honeymooned slash business tripped it up in Japan. She then traveled to Korea by herself and performed some songs from her films for about 60,000 U.S. Marines. Um, Upon her return to the U.S., she began working on... I'm sorry, can you imagine performing in front of 60,000 people? I would shit my pants. Yeah. Like, there is no amount of, like, alcohol or Xanax or anything that could prepare me to perform in front of 60,000 people. I can't. Whatever. So upon her return to the U.S., she began working on several films with Fox because her suspension was up. Um, One successful, the other not so much. The third, however, gave us the ever-famous subway great photo of Marilyn Monroe that literally every person on the planet knows. Mm -hmm. You say the word, say the name Marilyn Monroe and everyone pictures 
that photo. Mm-hmm. So this famous photo features Marilyn in a white dress standing on a subway subway grate. Jesus. The skirt of the dress is blown up and she is very gracefully attempting to cover herself. This scene was featured in the film The Seven Year Itch and this movie became a huge success upon its release in 1955. Um, This famous scene slash publicity stunt put Marilyn on the front pages all across the world. But... It also ended her marriage to Joe DiMaggio because he was pissed about it. Um, but he was physically abusive and he did not like that she was potentially more famous than he was because fragile masculinity. Mm-hmm. So they got divorced on, after only nine months of marriage. It's fine. So exhausted by her constant movie roles as the sex symbol, blonde bombshell, whatever the fuck, um, she created her own production company. She was ridiculed by everyone. Like, there was literally a fucking Broadway play written to make fun of her. A woman make her own company in the 1950s? Mm. How dare she? What the fuck? What are you thinking? How dare you? I hate it here. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So she continued with this uh, production company anyways, despite all of the fucking ridicule and bullshit people that suck. Um, She began dating various people in the limelight. Okay, bye. Such as Marlon Brando from the Godfather franchise uh, and playwright Arthur Miller, who wrote Death of a Salesman. Her relationship with Arthur Miller, which she refused refused to end against the advice of many, caused the FBI to give Marilyn Monroe her own personal file. This file would be... Largely added to throughout the remainder of Marilyn's uh, scandalous life. Mm -hmm. Arthur Miller was being investigated by the FBI for supposedly being a communist. He was probably just like mildly progressive. Like, oh my God, gays should be able to get married. And then everyone in the 1950s was like, (gasps) communist, you know. I was called a communist once. (laughs) I hope so. No, I'm being serious. Wait, what? Yeah. (laughs) Because I didn't like mustard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was. That's I'm telling the god honest truth. My mom's ex boyfriend, sort of god, I was the age of ten, did not like mustard, and he's like, "What are you communist?" I don't fucking like mustard. Every if I did not like something, he would call me a communist. Fuck yeah, commie buddies. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, Arthur so Miller. Cute. Uh, isn't she? Yeah. She's <laughs> like, can I come up here? So Arthur Miller is a communist. Marilyn Monroe dates him anyways. So it was also around this time when Marilyn Monroe began sneaking around New York. <laughs> so um, it was also around this time when Marilyn Monroe began sneaking around with New York Senator John F. Kennedy. No. Yeah. Schmidt. <laughs> Macy, make up your mind. You're not playing musical people. Come on. So Marilyn had moved to New York in 1955, and she was often seen leaving the Carlisle Hotel, where the Kennedys were known to stay when they were in town. This is getting outrageously long, and uh, so I'm going to skip slash summarize a lot of her life here. All right. Here we go. Throughout 1956, she made movies both for Fox and Marilyn Monroe Productions, which I will now call MMP. 
Uh, she married Arthur Miller on June 29th of 1956, and she began to slip away from the brand that Fox had originally pinned to her throughout or through using her projects with MMP. She was using these projects with MMP to get away from the sex, sex symbol. One magazine wrote that her performance in 1956's bus stop, quote, effectively dispels once and for all the notion that she is merely a glamour personality. By this time, however, Marilyn was fully addicted to her cocktail of barbiturates, amphetamines, and alcohol. She had also suffered a miscarriage by this time, and in 1957, she had an ectopic pregnancy and another miscarriage. Um, It was thought that she had endometriosis. So she was also hospitalized for a couple barbiturate overdoses. Um, between 1959 and 1960, she starred in a couple movies that were mostly unsuccessful. Uh, by 1960, Marilyn and Arthur's relationship was effectively over and she was suffering from gallstones and extreme drug dependency. Her career was suffering due to her drug dependency and the fact that she was notoriously difficult to work with and she began slipping in the critics' eyes. But on May 19th, 1962, Marilyn Monroe appeared at Madison Square Garden in New York to sing Happy Birthday, Mr. President, to the 35th President of the United States, Mr. John F. Kennedy. She appeared in a beige skin-tight dress that was covered in rhinestones. So it looked like she was nude and sparkly, like a vampire. <laughs> Hashtag Twilight. <laughs> this was the moment when rumors of an affair appear. This is the moment when rumors of an affair between the 35th president and the blonde bombshell actress began. Interestingly enough, there wasn't a ton of information about their supposed relationship in like any of the information about Marilyn herself. I mean, it was supposed to be like a secret affair because hello, he's a president and um, he was already married. So like, I get it. But I also feel like the fact that there isn't a ton of information about their relationship isn't a conspiracy, is a conspiracy in and of itself. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I did listen and uh, re-listen to Parcast's Conspiracy Theories episode about Marilyn Monroe and gathered this information about the affair. Keep in mind that um, I was unable to find their sources that they had used And they made a couple of mistakes throughout the episode that I listened to. They literally said that she was born on July 1st, but everywhere I read said that she was born on June 1st. So they fucked that up. So take all this information with a grain of salt. They said that Marilyn used to accompany him on, accompany JFK, on business trips, disguising herself with a black wig and horn-rimmed glasses. I imagine like the cat eye, you know, Mm, the cat eye glasses. I don't know what horn rimmed means, but whatever. And she would introduce herself as his secretary. She was also given the phone number of a direct private line to the White House, as well as a code name, Miss Green, so that she could directly call the president at any time of the night, which um, she was notorious for calling at like two, three, four in the morning because, well, she had insomnia. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. So her performance for the president and her attire during it royally pissed Fox off, like big time. Long story short, Fox fired Marilyn. They tried to sue her and then they blamed her for a movie that got canceled because she like wasn't there. So they blamed her for the loss of all that money and they tried to sue her for the loss of all that money. 
And then they started bashing her in the media. Because what the fuck else do you do? Right. They literally called her mentally ill. Or mentally disturbed. Sorry. But the people stood by Marilyn. And Fox realized that they fucked up by firing her. So they rehired her. And I'm going to skip a lot here. Um, but this is getting really fucking long. So let's talk about her death. All right. So August 5th, 1962, Marilyn's housekeeper, Eunice Murray, quote, woke up at 3 a.m. and felt that something was wrong. She went to check on Marilyn and saw a light from under her bedroom door. Marilyn was not responding and the door was locked. So Eunice tries to break the door down or call 911 or screams for her or literally anything rational, right? Wrong. Wrong. Fucking Eunice. Eunice calls Marilyn's psychiatrist, Ralph Greenson. When Ralph gets to the house, he breaks in through the bedroom window and finds Marilyn Monroe dead at age 36. So now they call 911, right? Hmm. No, wrong. Eh. They call Marilyn's fucking physician. Why not like a legal medical examiner? What the fuck? What the fuck? So Hyman, 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 Engelberg, Marilyn's personal physician, (laughs) he arrives on scene and pronounces Marilyn dead. Then they call the police. So now three people know, but I heard elsewhere that they had called um, 20th Century Fox and told them that she was dead and that Eunice called the fucking handyman to come clean up the glass that Ralph Grainson had just broke. To get into her room. What? Can you just call the cops? Can you just like... The LAPD was finally notified of Marilyn's death at 425 a.m. She had been discovered at least an hour prior. But I also heard that Eunice changed her story a couple times and said that she woke up at midnight. So, but then she quickly changed her story later to be 3 a.m. To like account for that lapse of time mm-hmm. between midnight and 4:25 a.m. when the cops were notified. Mm-hmm. It's kind of sus. Yeah, 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 yeah. So someone, I don't Jeez. fucking know who. Mhm. Yeah. Fuck you, Eunice. Mm. So someone, I don't fucking know who because this was all just so massively just fucked. Someone declared her time of death to be between 8:30 and 10:30 p.m. on August 4th. The toxicology report showed that she died of barbiturate poisoning, barbiturate poisoning, Jesus Christ, including 8 milligrams of chloral hydrate and 4.5 milligrams of pentobarbital in her blood and 13 milligrams, 13 milligrams of pentobarbital in her liver. They found empty medicine bottles next to her bed. They did, however, rule out accidental overdose because the dosages found in her body body were more than lethal like a fuck ton more than lethal the lethal amount so it was ruled as a uh, probable suicide and her funeral was private and was arranged by joe dimaggio half-sister bernice and maryland's manager inez melson melson sorry i said that weird <laughs> so many things so many things so Today you're going we're just we're just gonna discuss our thoughts and then next week you're gonna get like seven conspiracies. So yes. tune in next week. Yes. But like I just what the fuck, Eunice? 
Yeah, so she she's kind of a little bit sus. Um, not gonna lie, like not trying to spoil or anything, but I don't have any conspiracies on her. Like she was not a part of any of the conspiracies. Really, I heard I. I heard a couple. Um, they sort of. I only listened to the one episode of the podcast one, but they sort of talked about how they think that Eunice was hired by, um one of the Kennedys or someone else, they think she they that Eunice was hired to like for the purpose of spying on Marilyn. Hmm. So but like what I don't understand, she woke up at maybe midnight, maybe three AM, knowing at this point this was Marilyn Monroe's fourth overdose. Mm-hmm. So she had three quote unsuccessful overdoses before right so if the door is locked the light is on and you're not like she's not responding to you and she has this history of overdosing why the fuck did you not just call the police right away yeah that's a little sus i actually didn't know about anything like of course like how yeah Marilyn was found like I didn't even know that there was a like I kind of knew that the housekeeper was a thing but I didn't know that the housekeeper was there like did did she live there with Marilyn yeah okay well actually I don't know if she lived there but I know that she was staying there that night because Mm -hmm. I think Marilyn was um distraught the night before and so the psychiatrist Ralph Greenson he asked Eunice to stay there with her that night but so also part of the episode that I listened to they said like the police said the original police officer that was assigned to the case like he was the first one that responded Mm -hmm. he said that the carpet below Marilyn's door was like touching the door so when the door opened it like dragged across the carpet so there was no gap for Eunice to be able to see that the light was on. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's a little fucking sus there. Yes. Eunice. Yeah, what the fuck, Eunice? <laughs> so also, um, they said that there... So there were like 50 pills in these bottles. Mm-hmm. There were supposed to be 50 in one of these pill bottles, but there were only 10. Mm-hmm. But here's the, here's the kicker. There was no, when the original investigator got there, there was no glass of water in the room. How in the fuck is your girl going to take 40 fucking pills without water? They're going down dry. I cannot. You, mm, you have to be a special kind of person to be able to take pills like that without water. I could... I used to not even be able to take pills at all in my life. Like, I used to just throw throw up. I mean, it's a legit thing. Like, some people just can't. I had to learn by um, putting them in applesauce. I think when I was younger taking pills, I didn't, like, know how to swallow them properly. Mm-hmm. Or, like, yeah. put them, like, put enough liquid. So, I would always, like, feel them touch my throat. And if anything touches my throat that I do not like, I will literally throw up. Yep. So. Yeah. Well... And that going down dry, that would touch the throat, hella, I would have threw up. Yeah. Well, um, fun fact. When I got my wisdom teeth out, 
I had to relearn how to swallow pills. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because my mouth hurt so bad that I couldn't eat anything. And so I, like, could barely swallow, like, anything. Like, water, anything. Let alone pills. It was a mess. Goodness. I had to relearn how to swallow pills. Which was stupid because I had to be taking pain medication and antibiotics. Right. So, anyways. Mm. That's... <laughs> i don't know i just feel like eunice just eunice and i i feel like ralph was in on it ralph green's in her psychiatrist Mm -hmm. because he told eunice to stay the night at her house that night right and also like he broke the window to get in there and i also like the night before she died she had made a bunch of phone calls to friends to a there was one reporter who they um who she was talking to i can't remember her name she had been on the phone with bobby kennedy she had been on the phone with like her psychiatrist like she made a bunch of fucking phone calls that night and like some people she oh she had talked to um joe dimaggio's son uh, Joe Jr. So he was her stepson at one point in time. Right. And her stepson, ex-stepsons, apparently said that she was, like, not herself. She was slurring her words. She was clearly distraught. Like, something was wrong. And then Ralph Greenson, her psychiatrist, said exactly the opposite. He said, oh, when I spoke to her, she was in good spirits. She was not slurring her words. She was fine. She was fine. Right. There's just conflicting reports. Mm. This is just like, just sus. It's just so sus. It's a whole lot of sus. Yeah. This is like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Her death, This the circumstances and the fact that everyone keeps changing their stories is like why right what happened like why is everyone why can't anyone just come clean and like someone obviously knows something mm-hmm. figure your shit out tell the goddamn truth it's because they don't want to be next yeah quit trying to cover something up whatever okay well thoughts yes let's hear them yes i don't really have any oh. i'm not gonna lie <laughs> <laughs> okay well uh, we will be back. We will be back next week. Yes, you heard next week, not in two weeks. We will be back next week. So this episode airs. So this episode comes out on February eighth. So next week, February fifteenth, the day after Valentine's Day. Happy wow. Valentine's Day. Um, the part two will be out. Okay, so you don't have to wait two full weeks to hear all of the seven conspiracies. Next week is going to be a good one. Please don't miss it because I know that we didn't really discuss any conspiracies this week, any like in-depth conspiracies, but next week you're getting all seven of them. Yeah. Okay. All of them. So come back next week. Bring your snacks. Yep. Bring your snacks. Bring your wine. Bring your best conspiracy brain. Anything. Mm-hmm. Earthen. Pull out all the stops. Okay. Yes. We will see you next week, but for us, it'll be in approximately five seconds. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, bye. Goodbye. 
Thank you for listening to Murder on the Music Scene. Our cover art and our music and editing is done by Caitlin Anderson. Check out our website at murderonthemusicscene.com and don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Murder on the Music Scene. If you have suggestions or comments, email us at murderonthemusicscene at gmail.com. All of our episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. If you would like to support us, you can become a patron on Patreon. Just search Murder on the Music Scene or use the link on our website. Make sure to join us next time for another conspiracy-filled episode of Murder on the Music Scene.